Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 460. Wait, I'm confused about the movie. So the cops knew that Internal Affairs was setting them up? What are you talking about? There's nothing like that in there. Oh, you see, when I get bored, I make up my own movie. I have a very short attention span. But our point is very simple. You see when... Oh, look, a bird! It manages interference of things that are irrelevant. It really helps us to focus. Basically, it helps restrain us from responding to distractions. We spend an average of just 45 seconds on any screen before shifting our attention. It takes 25 minutes to bring our attention back to a task after an interruption. And we interrupt ourselves more than we're interrupted by others. Hi there, I'm Jeff, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, intentional and consistent reading is a must, followed by putting that knowledge into action. Remember, that's what we talk about in Note Making Mastery, my new cohort. Find out more at jeffbrown.me. The next one coming, I think, in March. In fact, we wrap up cohort number four. Today is our final session for cohort number four, the fourth iteration of Note Making Mastery, our largest group yet at about 37, 38 people. Love to have you in the next one again for more, jeffbrown.me. That's one of our paid programs. I'll tell you more in just a moment about one of our free options. First, I want to let you know more about today's guest. Her name is Dr. Gloria Mark, and she's author of the book, brand new, out earlier this month called Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. Find focus, fight distraction. I'll be asking Gloria to share about some of the commonly held misconceptions about distractions, understanding our attentional states and how they change throughout the day, the cost and consequences of our constant interruptions, and lots, lots more. Some of that free content I teased a moment ago that you can find at the Read to Lead community website is a free book summary every week. Just go to jeffbrown.me and sign up and you can get access to a brand new free 
summary each week. This week's summary is all about the book Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. We have a dozen or so summaries inside the community right now within categories like leadership, entrepreneurship, habits, mindset, productivity, communication, and more. A week ago, we doubled the size of the community, and this week, we added yet another 30 people. We've got 280, almost 300 people in this young community, and we'd love for you to be a part of it to get your free book summary each and every week. Not only that, but to also talk about what you're reading with others in the community and surround yourself with people who take personal and professional development as seriously as you do. Well, that's what you'll find there in the Read to Lead community. Again, visit jeffbrown.me to find out all about it. That's jeffbrown.me. Dr. Gloria Mark is Chancellor's Professor of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine. She received her PhD from Columbia University in Psychology and studies the impact of digital media on people's lives. She takes a deep dive in examining multitasking, interruptions, and mood with the use of digital devices. She's published over 200 articles and in 2017 was inducted into the ACM SIG Chi Academy, which recognizes leaders in the field of human-computer interaction. She's presented her work at South by Southwest and the Aspen Ideas Festival, and her research has appeared in places like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and NPR. Her new book is called Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. Find focus, fight distraction. Dr. Mark, Gloria, the pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for appearing on the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, uh, but I first became aware of your book when I was beginning to study um, late last year. You know, what are all the books that are going to be coming out in the first half of, of 2023? And as I was uh, studying these books, I came across yours. And so I decided to put together an episode uh, that kicked off the Read to Lead podcast for 2023 called something along the lines of the six books I'm looking most forward to in the first half of 2023. And yours was the first one uh, on that list. And so oh. I'm excited that when I reached out to you, you wrote right back and said, yes, I want to be here. And so uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to talk about the book. I think it's fantastic. And so so I think there's a lot of reasons to read this, this book. And I'm looking forward to letting the rest of the world uh, know about it. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so flattered. Um, I want to start by asking you, uh, because this is something I think people need to recognize as they listen, is the effort, the, the amount of research that went into the creation of this book. Talk a bit about the decades of research that informs specifically your writing for this book. Well, you're you're right. It it was decades. It's it's a lot of a uh, lot of research. In fact, mm. it was very hard to pick the right research to put into the book. I mean, I you know I have this entire portfolio of research. I actually started in the mid '90s, and you know I've I've been looking at human computer interaction for a very long time. In other words, the how people interact with their technology, looking at behavior, their attention, their mood. And so there's so many technologies, there there were so many different studies. So it was really very hard to find what, you know, what is the right theme that I want to talk about. But probably for me, the most interesting theme was the idea of attention. And the idea that attention, we're seeing attention switching when people are on screens. It was a behavior that I saw very early on 
Uh, I noticed it actually in myself uh, around the year 2000. I began to wonder, is, is it just me or do other people have the same kind of experience? So thinking like a scientist, I, I wanted to know what's behind this. And the first question was, how bad is this actually in terms of how hard is it for act, us to actually pay attention on any screen before switching? And so that's what set off this, this whole journey of studying attention. And so that was the, the theme that, you know, I felt was probably the one that I wanted to uh, tackle because it was something that was very personal to me and something that I just found very intriguing. Uh, coincidentally, uh, a book I read last year, in fact, it was on my year-end list of one of the best books I felt I'd read, even though it came out 13 years ago, was The Shallows by, oh, by Nicholas okay. Carr. I know you referenced that book, at least briefly. Uh, in, yeah, in your wonderful book. book. Yeah. Yeah, very, very good book. And before I read your book, as I read the description about it, I was sort of thinking, and I think I even described it on that podcast episode where I was talking about your upcoming book. I think I described your book without having read it as maybe it's sort of like a shallows 2.0. There's certainly, I think part two of the book kind of gets into the internet and such, and we'll get into that in a moment. But is that is that fair to say? Is it fair to call it that? Or is that a mischaracterization of, of your book, would you say? For the Shallows is a wonderful book. And mm. I, I I love it. In fact, I uh, I read that probably when it first came out and mm. was very, very excited about it. I think my book is different in the sense that it's it's very deeply rooted in research. Right. And uh, so I think that I stick pretty close to the research. And and that's just my nature. I'm an empiricist. I like to <laughs> stick with facts. Yeah. Um, the, the shallows is maybe a little bit more of an overview, although I, I also get into an overview as well. So sure. I guess maybe you could call it uh, <laughs> 2.0. I think that was a very diplomatic answer, but I, but the, the door I was attempting to open and, and you, you walk through it is that research aspect. And that's one of the things I really enjoyed about it. And I enjoy about books in general, when you can tell there is a high level of research that's been done that the author is pulling from uh, throughout. Um, you say early on in the book that there are some commonly held uh, misconceptions about uh, distraction. Uh, you reference uh, focus, I think it is, and flow and and the endless notifications that, that we were barraged by. What have you learned in, in studying these areas and these, these what you call misconceptions about these areas? Yeah. So, you know, there's a, a common narrative that we, by, by pushing ourselves to be as focused as long as possible, we can be our most productive. And the, the reason that narrative is false is that it, it's not wise and it's not even possible for humans to have extended periods of focus. We have limited attentional resources. And, uh, it, you know, we can't focus for extended periods in the same way that we can't lift weights all day without getting exhausted. And so, you know, the idea that let's pack as much into our schedules as possible is, uh, it's, it's not good for our productivity. What's better, in fact, is to think about uh, the times in our day when we have peak attentional capacity. And, and that is personal for every individual. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are certain times, you know, I can say in general, 
most people have their peak attention mid to late morning and again, mid to late afternoon. Mm. But you have peaks and troughs of attention. And and we have to be aware of that. And uh, when we start getting into a trough, it's time to step back, take a break, right? Mm. And replenish. And that's, we're not seeing in this narrative of focusing as long as possible. We're not seeing the aspect of the importance of really stepping back and replenishing resources and taking meaningful breaks. So, so that's one myth. Yeah, I want to I want to sort of switch gears for a second because as you're talking, it reminded me you're kind of reframing a, a lot of this, I think. And I want to talk about with regard to reframing just this wake up call you had. I think it was around 2009. You talk about it in the book, so I, I assume it's fair game to talk about. Yes, your, of course, of the, course. The, this wake up call that that prompted you to really reframe how you think of productivity, what you were just talking about. Yeah. So in uh, 2009, I was diagnosed with colon cancer and it was a shock because I thought it was the healthiest person around. Everyone always saw me as being healthy. I exercised, kept my weight down. I, I was very fit. And all of a sudden, you know, I get this diagnosis. In fact, this was given to me by a fellow. In other words, someone who's not quite, uh, you know, at the level of, you know, being a a surgeon. So it's somewhere, I guess, between being a resident and Mm. uh, being a physician. And I think that the title is called Fellow. And this person came in after they took the biopsy and said, Ms. Mark, you have a 50% survival rate. And I could not have been more shocked because prior to that, I thought I was the healthiest person in the world. I was in complete denial. They actually refined that this person was wrong. And when they did a computer analysis, I had a 69% five-year survival, which, which, you know, was a little bit better, but I, it really was a wake up call for me because I realized that I had just been pushing myself to the limits. I, I was exhausted. I was you know, working through late in the evening, wasn't taking sufficient breaks. I was super stressed. And um, and I realized that this maybe I'm paying the price for right. doing this. I, I'm thankful to say that I have been cancer free mm-hmm. since 2009. So I'm I'm very, very grateful for that. But I'm also I'm grateful for it that it became a wake-up call for me. And it made me understand that I I really need to think about what's really important. Mm -hmm. And by pulling back and making sure that I really took breaks, took time for what's important, I actually became more productive. (laughs) And I would say that I was, you know, I've been at my most productive since then. And it's it's not that I'm just my my wheels are just turning and I'm not getting anywhere, but actually by doing less, I'm actually doing more. Mm. And so it it was really, you know, I I am grateful now for that experience, even though at the time it it was very traumatic. This reminds me of a story you tell in the book about your time in Germany. And I just thought it was was interesting to learn how Germans tend to approach lunch. Yes. versus how those of us here in the States tend to do it. Share some of the sort of the contrast of those two scenarios, uh, just as an example of getting 
more done by doing less, I guess. Yeah. So in Germany, people reserve lunchtime for having a, a large meal. It's, it's called Mittagessen. Mm. Uh, Mittag means middle. And it's usually a very large, usually a warm meal that's done at lunchtime. And it's given a lot of importance. So my colleagues would, you know, we would gather everyone around and we would go off and we would have this nice meal. We would gossip. We'd talk about new technology. We'd give stories. And so, you know, it was really a, a spent a lot of time doing that. And then afterwards, we would take a, a walk around the campus where I worked in Germany it was called the German National Research Center for Information Technology, which at the time was the largest information technology research institute. Uh, we walk around the campus. It was beautiful. There was a castle on the campus, if you of can believe that. It's, it's Germany, right? <laughs> uh, and you you do what's called a, a rund, which is a round, walking around the campus, come back, and then you'd be really refreshed and ready for the afternoon and, and ready to tackle the afternoon. In 2000, I came back to the U.S. My husband and I both came back. We were hired as professors at University of California, Irvine. And all of a sudden, I had classes to teach. You know, in Germany, it was a life of luxury in that I only really had one research project that I could very deeply concentrate on and devote all my time to. Maybe I, I might have had one other one occasionally. Come back to the U.S., I had classes to teach, students to mentor. I had to write grants. Um, and all of a sudden, everyone is asking me to participate in projects. And before I knew it, I had counted, I think, about 11 different projects that I was working on. And so it was no wonder that I found myself switching my attention like crazy. And I found myself tethered to my computer screen. And so my lunchtime in the U.S. was that I would run to get takeout lunch. <laughs> and, and then I'd run back to my office and as I'm running back to my office, I would see the open doors of my colleagues sitting in their offices, sitting behind their computers, eating their lunches. And I'd slide into my chair and I would do exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And I was finding that lunch for me was not a time for break and relaxation, but it was simply a time to grab fuel before I could get back and sit in front of my computer again. I know for me, I would go through spurts when I worked a regular job. There'd be spurts where I would be good about getting out and going to lunch and getting away and recharging. And then other times where I would do what you described and grab something really quick to go back and sit at my desk. And I thought when I started working from home almost 10 years ago, that would change permanently. I would always be taking time to get away, but I, I still struggle with it. Uh, there are some times when I do that and I go and sit down in another room and eat and take a walk and go out with one of my dogs. But then plenty of other times where I eat and come back here to where I'm sitting now, or I don't even eat at all. I just work through and just keep on going. And so it's, uh, it's something I thought would get easier uh, when, when the environment changed, but I find it's, it's something I still have to work on really, really hard. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Sometimes we have to be very intentional about doing the things we should do to benefit our attention, which is eating well, taking meaningful breaks. That's really important. You know, I think many of us think of our attention as this thing that lives in, well, at least I think of it this way, as one central place in our brain uh, all the time. But that's, that's, that's not what the research says, is it? That's not actually true. 
No, there, there's actually networks of attention. And so, you know, it's, it's like, think of it like the financial system. There's no single entity that we can point to as being the financial system, but there's, there's banks, there's insurance companies, you know, there's, there's different kinds of systems. One system is called alerting, which is we, we use this to try to keep vigilant during a task. Like if we're really trying to concentrate on our work, another system is called orienting. And that's when we choose what it is we want to focus on. So if if there's a notification that comes on our screen and suddenly we look at that, we're orienting to that notification. Or if we choose to focus on the work in front of us, we're orienting to that. The third system is called executive control. And that's really important in terms of distractions. All systems are, but this one in particular is it, it manages interference of things that are irrelevant, just like an offensive lineman in football might do this. It really helps us to focus and basically it helps restrain us from responding to distractions. So these different systems work together in our mind and and they coordinate right and and if if they're all doing what they're supposed to be doing then we will be able to focus we'll be able to perform our work and we won't be distracted we won't be switching our attention furiously like like we do you alluded to this uh, earlier talk a bit more about uh, attentional states and, and how they, they change throughout the day. So people generally tend to think of attention as having two states. You're, you're focused or you're unfocused. That's the way yeah. the popular narrative is. But when I started studying this, I realized that there's different ways of being engaged in something. You can be engaged with a lot of mental effort. Like if you're really concentrating, uh, if I'm trying to read tax law. I I have to really be focused to try to understand it. Why would you ever do that? <laughs> uh, I I actually have tried to do that. It's 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 not fun. Yeah. But but even if I'm if I'm writing, if I'm writing say a book chapter, I have to be intentional. I have to be very focused. Yeah. But other times we can be very engaged in things without having much mental effort at all. And you can think of it as when you play solitaire, if you do easy crossword puzzles, when people garden, if you knit, you know, there's just all kinds of what I call rote activity, right? You can be really engaged, but it's easy. And then of course, if you're not engaged and not challenged, that's a state of boredom. And uh, I'll tell you an interesting fun fact about that. When you're bored, you're not really using mental resources. And so when we have all these spare resources, what do we do? We pay attention to time. And that's why when you're bored, you're always you know, thinking about the time passing. <laughs> it's because we have this excess capacity of mental resources. Wow. And in, in fact, the German word for boredom is langweile which means long time. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. So, so, and then of course, if you're really challenged, you're 
putting in a lot of mental effort and you're just not engaged. You can't bring yourself to get involved with something. We call that a state of frustration. When my technology breaks down, it's very, very challenging. And I'm I'm just not engaged. I have a hard time getting myself motivated to to do what I need to do to figure out the problem. Or software developers report frustration when they have a bug. So that's an example. So these are different kinds of attention, and we we move in and out of them throughout the day. And I think the the two states of attention that are are really most interesting for us when we talk about productivity being productive is the state of focus, where you're challenged and and engaged, hmm. uh, and and this road activity where you're engaged and it's very easy. You're doing something very easy. And that's because we find in our research that when people are doing this road activity, that's when they're happiest. It it has a calming effect for them. And and I know that's true for myself. Uh, For me, my favorite road activity is playing this anagram game. And it it just serves to relax me. Or, you know, I have a computer scrabble game. It's relaxing. It's it's not effortful at all. And it allows me to pull back and replenish my resources. And we find that people switch between these these different states. You know, I've heard it suggested many times that our attention spans are on par with with goldfish. Uh, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. You know, seven or eight seconds, I've heard multiple times. But as I was reading like the, the dust jacket on your book, I read that the research that you've done suggests it's a little longer than that. But the length of time it takes us to then get back to a task is 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 quite long, mm-hmm. and not only that, but the the interruptions that we are suffering are not coming from where I expected them to come. So the the goldfish figure, uh, I believe that's been debunked. Um, we found in, in the last five six years an average of forty seven seconds of attention on a screen on average, and it, it's not just my work. Others have replicated this within a few seconds, and if you look at the median length of attention span. A median means the midpoint of all your observations. So if you look at all your observations, what's that point in the middle? That's 40 seconds. 40 seconds is pretty close to 47 seconds. Mm. And what that means by looking at the midpoint is half of all of our observations showed attention to be longer than 40 seconds. And sometimes we do spend longer. But what's more concerning to me is that half of the observations were less than 40 seconds, Mm. which suggests that we're switching our attention quite often. We're switching it quite rapidly on our screens from screen to screen in what I call a kinetic kind of way. And I call this kinetic attention. It's a term borrowed from physics that refers to the dynamic state of attention that we see people have when they're on their screens. So, yeah, so this is what, and and this is measured empirically using computer logging techniques so that we can get really precise measures. We can get timestamps so we can see precisely exactly how long people are, are on screens, computers and phones. That was interesting too. There's one spot in the book. I just was reminded of this as you're talking of, of, of four images of the same person and you see one images of them. Uh, here it is, uh, page 219, one image of them performing a task without interruption 
and showing neutral emotion. And then you see three other pictures where they're multitasking and continually being interrupted and, and showing these, these angry expressions. Uh, it's very eye-opening to see that in sort of in real life, if you will. Yeah. So we when we did that experiment, we had people do tasks first without interruptions and then with interruptions. We videotaped their faces. We applied emotion detection software, which is pretty accurate, mm. so that we were not relying on our subjective impressions of it. And it showed that when people are multitasking, switching their attention, in this case, we kept interrupting them with other tasks to do, their expressions showed more anger, more negative emotion. Now, when people work in organizations, organizations are public places. And so when you when you have people multitasking and when they have these negative expressions on their face, uh, it, it can have contagion effects, right? Of course, we can be affected by the expressions of people around us. So um, so multitasking can actually be manifest in the, the actual expressions that we have on our faces. Are there other consequences or costs of constant interruptions that we need to be aware of? Oh, yes, yes. So people think that when they multitask, they can do more. When they're switching their attention between different tasks, they can do more, but we're, we're actually doing less. And first of all, let me debunk the idea that people can do two tasks at the same time. It's not humanly possible. You can if one or both of the tasks are automatic tasks. Automatic means like walking is automatic. We don't have to give it any thought, much thought at all. Uh, driving can be automatic un until someone swerves in front of you, and then all of a sudden it's not automatic. You're right. paying attention. So it's not possible for people to do two things that require effort at the same time. What we are actually doing is switching our attention rapidly back and forth. And it usually turns out we do neither one of those very well when we do that. First of all, it's been well documented that people make more errors when they do this kind of attention switching. We know this in laboratory research, in real world studies, doctors, nurses, pilots have been shown to make more errors. In fact, this is really, uh, this study makes me very uneasy, but doctors make more prescribing errors mm. when they're multitasking. Uh, we also know that it takes longer to do a task, to do any single task when you're switching your attention between them. There's something called a switch cost. And those, the switch cost is the extra time it takes to reorient to that new task. And I can, I can explain that with a metaphor when we think about a whiteboard. So every time we do a task, we have an internal representation of that task. So if I'm writing a book chapter, I've got an idea in my mind of what the topic is I'm writing, the information I need to write it, maybe my word choice, maybe the people involved. So I have this representation. And then when I switch and I switch to another task, I have to raise that representation that's written on an internal whiteboard in my mind. Think of it like an internal whiteboard. I erase it, and then I have to write this new representation of this new task I'm doing. Then I switch to something else, and I have to quickly erase that whiteboard and write this new task. And every time we switch our attention, that's what's going on in our minds. 
with this constant erasing and rewriting of these new representations of whatever the task at hand happens to be. Mm. Now, just like in the real world, when you erase a whiteboard, sometimes you can't completely erase it. (laughs) And it's the same with when Mm. we switch tasks, there can be a residue. So if I'm reading, let's say I switch my attention and I read a new story about a horrific accident, that's going to stay with me when I try to go back to my task. Or I go to my email and I'm being asked to do some huge piece of work, right? And then I go back to my task and I'm still thinking about that work that needs to be done. That's called a switch cost. The time it takes to erase the whiteboard and white write in. And one last thing about multitasking and This is probably the worst, is that it causes stress. And we know from laboratory research that blood pressure rises when people are multitasking. Uh, There's a physiological marker in the body that indicates people are stressed. In my research, we had people wear heart rate monitors in the office, and we could time sync exactly when the monitors showed stress and what they were doing on their computers. And we found a correlation between switching attention on the computers and people being stressed. Mm. And then when people are asked, you know, what's your perceived level of stress? People report being stressed. So all of these measures are consistent. And it's, mm. it's not good for our health and well-being to have this kind of constant stress throughout the day. Probably stands to reason that it's not just our feelings and levels of stress, but it's also these things and how they impact, whether it's the internet or AI, which you're hearing a lot about these days, or algorithms on our thoughts as well. Absolutely. Too. Yes. Yes. It's 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 the content also plays a role. Absolutely. Can you expound on that? Yeah. Let me take the case of email because mm-hmm. email is the most common interruption. At least that's what my participants in my studies report. And we see consistently that email is associated with stress. It's associated with bad mood. In other words, when people go on email, we see consistently that it brings out negative emotions. Why is this the case? It's because email represents work. It's a symbol of work and the receiver of the email bears the cost. the, The person who sends the email gets the benefit. Because usually they're asking something of the receiver. Right. You know, can can you give me this information? <laughs> it's easy to delegate work over email. We've seen that over and over again. And so the recipient uh, has the disadvantage, right? And so there's this imbalance of costs and benefits with email. And so as a result, right, when we're thinking about stress, and we're thinking about shifting our attention every time people shift attention to email, they're getting this, this hit of stress. And, and we find that people check email on average 77 times a day. And so if, if a good portion of those times are associated with stress, you, you can imagine what it does to us. There's so much from your research that I, uh, as I learn about it, I'm thinking of ways I can use this in, in the things that I can teach and the people that I interact with. The, the whiteboard analogy was just was beautiful. Thank you for that. I get really excited when I talk to people like you about who can I share this with? Whose nose can I get into, into this awesome book so they can know the things that I now know? How are our attention spans, Gloria, influenced, say, 
socially? What is what has your research shown you specifically in in that space? We we are social creatures, and we respond to social rewards. That that's how humans are. So there is this interaction between our social natures and and the internet, particularly any kind of technology that has some social component to it. Social media, email, Slack texting. So some ways that this interaction occurs is we we care about accumulating social capital. And social capital means accumulating resources from other people. We we trade in social capital. If you pick up some groceries for me, I I owe you some social capital. So I'm going to try to return the favor and I'm going to, you know, pick up your kids from school so I can we can maintain a balance of social capital. It's a reciprocity type of thing. Yeah, it's reciprocity, exactly. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens on the internet. So when we get emails, we respond to those people with who we want to maintain a good account of social capital with. In particular, we we want to do that person a favor because maybe they'll do us a favor mm-hmm. at some point. And Maybe there might be a future job offer or mm-hmm. you know, some invitation in the future. And so we respond to that. We want to keep social capital with our colleagues, right? Because we want to have good relations. So we jump to answer Slack messages, um, especially with our managers. You know, mm-hmm. we're on the lookout for their <laughs> messages. You know, another aspect of our social natures is identity. And so some people. Not, not everyone, but some people spend a great amount of time in in nurturing and maintaining their online identities. And for some people, their online identity can take on even more importance than their real life identity because okay. online you can create yourself to be however you want to be. And in the book, I talk about the example of this young man who mixed paints and he created videos showing all these unusual kinds of paint colors he created. He became a sensation on on the internet. But in real life, you know, he was a guy working at a paint store. <laughs> and and so people can can really spend a tremendous amount of time because the internet offers us the opportunity to convey our identities to the world. Maybe one last thing I'll talk about is the idea of power. Just like in Real life, their power affects relationships. It also affects relationships on the internet. If I'm lower in the social hierarchy than someone else, I'm going to be watching out for a message from that person. And I spend more time looking out for that person than that person does looking for my message. So there's an imbalance of power and it's reflected in the amount of time that we spend, you know, in these various kinds of social uh, systems. I call them social systems, email, Slack, social media. To your point about how we present ourselves on social media, I I had to chuckle inside because just today I changed my picture, my profile picture on on a couple of platforms, uh, one of them, Facebook. And it's uh, an image of me that's been created with artificial intelligence. Uh, And among, among the hundred or so that were created, I thought it was the one that looked the most like me and best represented me. And someone asked, uh, they said, hey, what style is is that photo in? Is there an option that the AI tells you? And I said, yes, but you have to promise not to laugh. It's superhero. 
Ah. (laughs) I I hadn't even paid any attention to that. But when I went back to the app and looked, I'm like, oh, that must be why I like that one so much. Because I look like apparently like Clark Kent or something in that photo. Oh, (laughs) that's a wonderful story. I love that story. Um, you know, we talked a lot about the internet and, and, and a bit about AI and algorithms and all that stuff. Um, what about maybe traditional media and how it conditions our attention? Anything you learned there uh, in your research? I think you're talking about film and TV. Right. So it, it turns out that uh, shot lengths in film and TV have also decreased in length over the years. It's, it's a trend that goes in parallel mm with our own decreasing attention spans. So they average now four seconds per shot length. Wow. And, you know, if you ever turn on your TV and just turn the volume down, then you really become aware of the shifting Mm. of the shot lengths or pull up a, a blockbuster film on YouTube, like the Transformers, and don't listen to the soundtrack, just watch the images. And Mm. Transformers is shorter than average. I think it's like three seconds on average or or two seconds. And the shots just keep shifting like crazy. Anyways, it's it's a parallel trend for these Mm. shot lengths to to have become shorter. Now, is there a cause and effect? It's a chicken and egg question. So, And it turns out that Americans spend a good portion of their day watching TV and film, mm-hmm. something like a little over four four hours a day on average. Wow. Um, does Is that cause us to have short attention spans? Or it could easily be the other way around. It could be that the directors and editors of film and TV, maybe they're, they're creating the shots based on what they think people will pay attention to. Or it could be that they're influenced by their own short attention spans, and and that's influencing them to create these short shot lengths. There is this this very interesting kind of parallel trend that's going on, and it suggests that the phenomenon of having short attention spans is much broader than just our experiences on our screens, our computers and phone screens, but it's also we see it in a much broader media environment. Of course, for film and TV, the the screens are controlled by directors mm. and editors. Well, is there anything from the book, Gloria, that I haven't asked about or I haven't touched on that you want to make sure that, that we walk away with? Well, you had asked us and, and I didn't get to it. And and this is one of the myths that you asked about earlier. Mm. Um, and it's the idea that we tend to blame our short attention spans and our distractions on targeted ads and notifications. Mm -hmm. And certainly that is a part of it. We, We can't deny that. They certainly distract us. But it turns out that people are just as likely to self-interrupt, to have interruptions originate from within themselves. Mm. So irrespective of any external distraction. That was one of the most surprising things I found in my research. So 49% of the time, we distract ourselves. And why is that the case? Well, we might have an urge to look up information. We're we're sitting in front of the world's largest candy store. So of course it's, it's very tempting. Uh, We might have a memory to do something. In the book, I talk about Luma Zygarnik, who was a researcher 
about 100 years ago who studied interruptions. Mm. And she found that when people had an interrupted task, they tended to remember it better than tasks that were completed. And why is that the case? Because when you complete a task, it's off your plate. It's done. Mm. You forget about it. Mm. When it's not completed, it stays with you. It's in the back burner of your mind. It's kind of nagging at you. And so going back to this idea of self-interruptions, that's also a reason for self-interruption is this, you know, the, the nagging memory we have of that unfinished task. And we have continual unfinished tasks throughout the day. Uh, so, so that's another reason. Um, I, I can tell you that we looked at the relationship of external interruptions with internal interruptions. And external interruptions are from notifications and ads and emails, phone calls, and internal interruptions are those that originate from within ourselves. And we find, interestingly, that when the external interruptions wane, when they go down, we begin to self-interrupt more. Mm. And it's a really interesting pattern. And we, we looked at the data on an hourly basis. And it suggests to us that, suggests to me at least, that we're conditioned to be interrupted. If we're not interrupted by something external, we begin to interrupt ourselves. And it's a way to maintain our short attention spans. And so we, we are continually shifting our attention, whether it's from our own accord or from something external to us. One more question I want to ask you, uh, and this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your book, but it may include books that you referenced there. I don't know, but I'd be curious to know two or maybe three books that you've read over the course of your career. They can be recent or ones you've read a long time ago that maybe have impacted you in in, in a powerful way. Yeah, I I love uh, Yuval Harari's work, Homo Deus. I I, I just love that book. That's that has had a, a quite an impact. On me, I, I love the book um, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Uh, you know, I've studied Kahneman and Tversky for for many many years, even in my dissertation work. So I am very interested in that. There, uh, a, a recent book that came out that I can recommend is Nina Totenberg's My Dinners with Ruth. Okay. Which is just, it's a memoir. It's just a beautiful memoir. And of course, I, I love to read about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it's just beautifully told. It's a very nice story. You know, that's a, a recent impactful book for me. Excellent suggestions. Well, Dr. Mark's book, or Gloria, as her friends call her, is called Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. Find focus, fight distraction. I would put it at the top of your list for 2023. Uh, trust me on that one. Gloria, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was really fun conversation. As I mentioned earlier, this book was on my short list of the six books I think you need to go out of your way to read in the first six months of 2023. It's the one of those six, the only one of those six that's out right now. So what are you waiting for? Go out and get Attention Span by Dr. Gloria Mark, links to the book and the books that she recommended, as well as the other resources that we chatted about, can all be found on the show notes page for this episode, readtoleadpodcast.com slash 460 for episode 460.
You can join nearly 300 other people when you go to jeffbrown.me and sign up to get access to a free business book summary every single week. That many people can't be wrong. Not only get access to those summaries, but surround yourself with people who take personal and professional development as seriously as you do. Why would you not want to do that? And it's free. Again, jeffbrown.me to find out more. There you can also find out about our cohort, note-making mastery, and other programs as well. One more time, that's jeffbrown.me. You know, it's always encouraging to hear from others about how they're being impacted by the Read to Lead podcast. I got such a note from Dan on LinkedIn first in June of 2018, where he said, I'm a longtime listener to the podcast and just wanted to thank you for putting out such great content on a consistent basis. You've trickled little bits of motivation and valuable tips to me for the last three years. Just wanted to let you know, and I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you letting me know that, Dan. Well, just last week, Dan wrote me again and said, looks like I've messaged you in the past to say thanks, but I suppose you'll accept another thanks a few years later. Throughout the last 10 years, he says, I've cycled through perhaps 100 podcasts at different seasons. Yours stands alone as a through line amongst the rest. Grateful for you. Well, Dan, I think that's pretty awesome. Thanks for taking the time to share that with me. I really, really appreciate it. It's funny, Dan later mentions that when he started listening to Read to Lead, he was 20 and he's 30 now. And and, and that just blew me away. I mean, I, I realize the show's been around for almost 10 years. But to think that I've been doing it long enough that someone who started listening when they're 20 is now 30, I just had never thought about it that way. So, Dan, thank you again for your kind and your wonderful message. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming back each and every week like you do. It means a lot. Hope you'll be back again next week. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.